No matter what you do in life, no matter where you are, we always want to have an understanding of the big picture, do we not? You know, when you have a job, when you're at work, whatever position you're fulfilling, whatever tasks that you're doing, you want to be able to understand how your task fits into the greater scheme of things. You want to be able to understand uh, what is the vision of the company, where it's trying to go, what it plans to achieve, and how your job makes a difference in that. And what has been studied and confirmed over and over again are that people that work with a very clear purpose and mission are the ones who are often the most satisfied and the most productive with regards to their work. The worst thing for anyone to do is to be given a task and told to do it without having any idea of what impact that task has on anything or anyone. And that's true for us as Christians. You know, many of us have been saved. We've heard the gospel. We've responded to it. We now call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. But oftentimes we can feel like a fish just flapping out of water, not knowing what we're supposed to be doing. A lot of times we struggle with the ways of this world, with the influences that are all around us. We struggle with the sinful temptations that we find in our own hearts. We struggle with people that may be a, a bad influence, provide temptations to us in our life. And so it's because of this, it's because of our life, it's because we want to live in a way that glorifies God the Father. We want to live in a way in which we'll be able to go to heaven and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's for those reasons that we need to be able to see the big picture. And fortunately, when we go through scripture, and especially when we go through these letters, we often see the writers remind us of what that big picture is. He reminds us not only our role, but how God is using us in that role, how God is operating. And in particular, how God is operating, not just in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. For us, as we look around, what we see are the, the proof of the physical world. And we can get lost in that physical world, not remembering that there are spiritual realities that we must always be aware of. And the lives that we live, the way that we operate, the purpose that we operate with are crucial for us to be productive, not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. And so that's why I love the letter of Ephesians, because Ephesians not only gives us a vision for the church, Ephesians not only is chock full with wonderful gospel theology, it is not only filled with wonderful commandments for those within the body of Christ and how we are to operate and behave, but it also shows us how we fit within the big picture and the effect that we have both in the physical as well as the spiritual realm. And so this morning, we're going to continue in this passage that we actually started last week. This is part two, as you can see in the slide up there, part two of God's gracious work in Paul's ministry. God's gracious work in Paul's ministry. We're going to cover Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And my purpose this morning will be to help us understand God's plan and purpose in Paul's life, as an example, in Paul's life, so to encourage us to greater faithfulness as stewards of God's grace today. 
Let me say that again. My purpose is to help us understand God's plan and purpose as seen in Paul's life so that we would be encouraged to greater faithfulness as stewards of God's grace today. And I'm going to break up this passage into three sections. Um, I'll give you these section titles as we go through. But let's go ahead and read through the entire passage, starting in verse one. You can open up to your Bibles or you can follow along with the slides. Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse one, we read for this reason. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his spirit. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So wonderful passage of scripture. And this is really Paul opening up from a personal standpoint, his ministry, the stewardship that was given to him as we had covered last week. We discovered his stewardship. We talked about how it was revealed to him and and how this mystery had been hidden for all these ages up until the time of Christ and the prophets and apostles that would follow. And we talked about the stewardship given to him and we related to that to the stewardship given to us. But for this morning, we're going to take a look at the second half of this section. And the first section that we're going to look at, the first uh, header is the gracious plan of God. The gracious plan of God. So as we go back to verse 8 and we take a look at verse 8 and we read the first half of verse 8, we see this. Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Now, when he says, to me, the least, very least of all saints, this is not new. I mean, if you've read Paul's other letters, you've heard him say very similar things before. And it's not hard to understand the reasons why he would say this. But in this case, when he says the very least of all saints, it's one thing for himself, for him to say the least of all saints. But he says the very least and literally in the Greek, it's, you know, when you think about um, less, lesser and least. Right. I mean, there's a comparison there. Less and then you have lesser and then you have least. Uh, Really, in the Greek, this is like him saying leaster. So this is less than the least. I am the lowest than than even I'm lower than even the lowest. 
But what's interesting is that in other places, he says that he is the least of all apostles. In fact, if you look at the next slide, we'll see 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, in which he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So we've seen this in other places where he has stated it. But then we also have verses that may confuse us as we look at the next verse, 2 Corinthians 11.5. 2 Corinthians 11.5, Paul says this, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. And then in addition, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11, we read this, I have become foolish, you yourselves have compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So in one sense, he says he is the least of the apostles, or he is even less than the least of the saints. And in other times, he says that he is no less than any of the other apostles. Is this a contradiction? Well, obviously not. So how do we understand these verses? Well, if we take a look at the larger context, um, take a look at the slide, and we're taking a look now at 2 Corinthians, once again, 2 Corinthians 11. And when we expand the context just a little bit, we discover something. Verse 5, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. So when he says that he is not in the least inferior to even the most eminent apostles, verse 6 makes clear that he is talking about his knowledge compared to those apostles. He is not inferior to them when it comes to knowledge. And then we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. And verse 12 goes on to say, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So here, what Paul is saying, when he says he is, he is no less than the other apostles, he means in terms of his stature, in terms of his authority. He worked the same signs and miracles as the other apostles were able to work. He has the same authority that the other apostles have. But when he calls himself the least, we, we know the reason why he does that. It's not in terms of his authority. It's not in terms of his knowledge. When he calls himself less than the least, he's talking about the fact that he once persecuted the church. He knows that in his heart he is less deserving than any of the others. But, you know, when, when Paul says this, this is not false humility because as we're reminded taking a look again at Ephesians 3 8 it says that he is the very least of all saints he is the very least of all saints he doesn't say apostles in this case and who are the saints all believers all believers in fact this letter started off being addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus so Paul here is saying he is actually lesser than the least of all saints now, come on, Paul, that can't be objectively true. Are you saying that no one else has been a greater sinner than you? Well, Paul can't say that because he doesn't objectively know each and every single person's life. But this is an attitude that all of us need to have, that all of us, as we look into our lives, this is not false humility on the part of Paul. Paul is looking at his own life, and he recognizes just how undeserving he is of the grace of God. 
how undeserving he is not only of salvation, but even to be called an apostle. And just as Jesus talked about when we're looking to confront someone else, address the plank that's in your own eye before you address the speck that's in theirs. It's the same kind of mindset that you need to see your sin as bigger than others. You need to see your unworthiness as even more unworthy than others. There really should be no self-righteousness in any of us in terms of our salvation. None of us deserved to be saved, and none of us deserve even the stewardship and the ministry that we are blessed with. And so as Paul shares this attitude and opinion of himself, it's a lesson to us in humility. But as we continue on, we see there, he says not only that to me, the very least of all saints, he says this grace was given. This grace was given. Now, what grace was given? Well, that ties back to Ephesians chapter 3, right in the same chapter, verses 2 and 7. And I put them up there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. And then in verse 7. He goes on to say, to which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So here in verse 8, he's saying that this grace was given to me. Grace here is a lot more than just about salvation. It's about the ministry that he has. We often think of grace in terms of our salvation, that we were saved, that we came to know the gospel. But by grace also, we have been given wonderful opportunities to serve the king as well. We have been given wonderful opportunities to glorify God in the ministries and in the gifts that we have been given. And so as we continue on, what is this grace that was given? Well, it's the, it's the ministry that he has. And the ministry is revealed here, at the end of, starting in the end of verse 8. It's, it's to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And first he says to preach. Now, when it comes to preaching, when you see the word preach or proclaim in the Bible, there are many Greek words. There are at least four or five different words that I can think of off the top of my head that could be used. But in this case, the word that he's using is the same word for evangelizing. In fact, it's the Greek word euangelizo, which is where we get evangelism from. And so really this preaching is about preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But here, he doesn't say the gospel. What does he say? He says the unfathomable riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Now, obviously, when we think of Christ, we think of our salvation. We think of his death on the cross. We think of the price that he paid on the cross. But Paul has been spending the first three chapters talking about some of these unfathomable riches. As we take a look up here, just what we've seen so far in the first two chapters, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, lays out all the spiritual blessings that we've received in Christ in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, he talks about how we've been raised and seated with Christ and saved by grace. We've been made a new man, that we are the workmanship of Christ in order to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And then from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, we saw the blessing that we have been united, that Jews and Gentiles have been united into one new man. It's not that we have been subsumed into Israel or that Israel has been subsumed with the Gentiles, but together they have become one new man in Christ. 
And so he has been talking over and over again about all the various wealth and riches that we have in Christ. And when we think about the word unfathomable, what do we mean by unfathomable? Well, unfathomable means, can mean inscrutable or incomprehensible. Um, it could also just, just the idea of limitless depth. All right, when we think about the riches of Christ, we can never fully understand it. We can never fully mine it. We, we can never run out of its riches as we seek to understand it. But what's amazing as we think about it, even though we may use these words like incomprehensible, it doesn't mean that we don't meditate upon it. It doesn't mean we don't continue to grow in it. In fact, consider this fact that though Paul calls it unfathomable, and yet he is called to preach it. He is called to teach it. We see it in our scriptures. And when you go through these letters and you study it and you really throw yourself into it and you start to see all the connections between the letters, between Old Testament and New Testament, and you start to understand all the rich layers that are involved with your salvation, it is amazing how much you will just continue to learn. It is amazing as you continue to learn how much you're going to be driven to praise. And it is amazing the more that you are driven to praise the Lord our God, the more you're going to be motivated to do his good works and to glorify him. These are the reasons why we've got to dive into the scriptures. These are the reasons why we seek to understand some of this deep theology that Paul is teaching us. For some of us, it, it's difficult to grasp. We may, may not fully grasp it the first few times we hear it. But I'm here to teach it so that we can be continually exposed to these wonderful depths. And as you start to see more and more, as you start to understand more and more, I guarantee you this will be a tremendous blessing to you. This is why Paul writes these things, because he wants us to know. He wants us to understand what it is he understands. But he's not only preaching to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, but as we continue on in verse 9, he is to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Now, when he says bring to light, it's the same word used for illumination. We see that earlier in chapter 1 and when it talks about illumination of the mind. It's to bring to light, it's to reveal. And the, when he says administration, to bring to light, what is the administration? Well, the word for administration is the same word that he used for stewardship earlier in this chapter. This stewardship, this administration is really talking about the revealing of this mystery that he, that he has been talking about at the end of chapter 2 and the start here of chapter 3. He says the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. This mystery refers to God's plan for Gentiles as we've been studying. This idea that Gentiles would not only be blessed and saved. I mean, we knew that from the Old Testament. We knew that from various verses in the Old Testament that God had always had a plan to save Gentiles. But what Paul emphasizes here is that what had been hidden is that his plan for Gentiles is that they would be part of the same family. That they would be in God's household. That they would actually be part of the temple of God. That they would be built along with believing Jews into the temple of God, into a dwelling place for the spirit. This is the mystery that has been hidden for ages. It has been hidden in God. And by the way, when he says it has been hidden in God, it emphasizes that this plan had been God's plan all along. 
Sometimes you will hear, unfortunately, you will hear churches that provide a wrong view of God. And they'll say, well, God didn't expect this to happen. God didn't expect that to happen. And he's kind of growing and he's learning and and he's kind of responding to things along the way. No, no, no. There is no plan B for God. There is a plan A and that plan A, it is impossible for it to fail. God had this plan all along, but it was hidden in him. And revealed after Jesus Christ appeared. It was revealed to the apostles and the prophets. It was revealed to Peter when he went to minister to Cornelius, a Gentile. It was revealed to Paul as he was called by the Holy Spirit to go out on missionary journeys to help bring salvation to the Gentiles. It was revealed to other apostles and prophets when Paul had to had to go before the Jerusalem council to explain how the gospel has been providing salvation to Gentiles without requiring circumcision. These mysteries were revealed, had been previously hidden in God, but now they are revealed. And at the end of verse nine, when it says hidden in God who created all things, this emphasizes the power and sovereignty of God. It is a reminder that as it had been hidden in God, God is the one who has created all things. He created the heavens and the earth. He is all powerful to create and he is completely sovereign to sustain. This is a reminder of the great attributes of God. And the secret that had been hidden with him had been hidden with the one who knows all things, who had created all things, who is sovereign over all things. But as we think about the gracious plan of God that it was revealed to Paul to preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which had been hidden for ages. He's now going to transition to the second section that we have in our outline. The second section, the first one was the gracious plan of God. And the second is the eternal purpose of God, the eternal purpose of God. And so as we take a look at verse 10. Verse 10 starts off with the word, so that. And once again, whenever we see so that, that often communicates purpose or result. Purpose or result. And here we have the purpose, the eternal purpose of God. It says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what is manifold wisdom? The word manifold, that's not a word we use very often. The word in the Greek, it really means diversified. It's diversified or or many-sided, many sides to take a look at. In a way, like when you hold a prism to the light, you know, you you can kind of move it around and you see a lot of colors coming out of that prism. It is many-sided. And in fact, um, in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used to describe the, the, the coat that Joseph wore. Remember that multicolored, uh, that, that technicolor dream coat that he had on? Um, the same word is being used there. So it can mean diversified, many sided. Um, some call it multifaceted, multi splendored, or most varied. So there, it's, it's just a difficult word to translate because we don't have an exact word like this in the English. But in essence, it's saying that this wisdom has many layers, it has many angles, it has many ways of understanding. It's not something that we grasp immediately. There are many ways to understand it. So this manifold wisdom, this multifaceted wisdom of God, this is, this is so that that multifaceted wisdom of God might now be named, 
be known throughout the church. So when he says might now be made known, it's a reminder that that which had been hidden in God, that which had been hidden for all the ages until Jesus and the prophets, and the apostles came. When he says made known, this is a passive verb, meaning that it's God that reveals it. So God's the one that hid it. He's the one that kept it hidden. He is the one that reveals it. We don't learn this through our own research. We don't learn this through our own wisdom. We don't learn this through worldly research and, uh, and, and laboratory tests. This is only revealed to us by God. It reminds me of when Peter made that confession to Jesus Christ that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And do you remember what Jesus' response was? Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. Amen. Spiritual truths, whether revealed or hidden, ultimately are revealed by God to us. So it might be made known, but this manifold wisdom, this multifaceted wisdom was not only made known to all of us as believers, but it says here was made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now we think about that phrase, through the church. This is very interesting because we are the church. Anyone who is saved by Jesus Christ is added to the church. They are baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church. But what's interesting here is that Paul is not talking about his preaching. He's not merely just talking about the proclamation of the gospel, though that is involved as well. But here he is talking about through the church, just the church itself. What does he mean by that? Well, when we think about the church, think about what Paul has been teaching us up until this point. He has been teaching us that the church is the temple of God. It is the dwelling place of the Spirit. It is the combination of Jews and Gentiles come together. And previously, while there had been a divide between Jews and Gentiles, there had been hatred between those two groups. There had been disdain for one another. That Jesus Christ is the one that broke down the barrier of that dividing wall. He is the one that broke down the enmity, not only the enmity, not only the issue that we had with God, the enmity that we had with God, but also the enmity between one another. That's why here in the church, it doesn't matter what ethnicity we are. It doesn't matter what color our skin is. It doesn't matter what culture you grew up in, what country you came from. It doesn't matter what influences you previously had in your life, how your parents raised you or what your schools taught you. Because once you were saved by the gospel, you were made into a new man in Christ. And once you were made into a new man, you were baptized into the body in perfect unity. Now, we don't experience perfect unity. That is our goal. But there is a unity in the body of Christ that is only created by the gospel. And so just the existence of the church is a testimony to God's work to his manifold wisdom, to his multifaceted wisdom. Because consider this. See, if you read through the Old Testament, if you think about Israel's Old Testament history, you know who Satan would often use to tempt Israel? Gentiles. In the nation of Israel, they were surrounded by Gentile nations who constantly brought in false gods into the land. Or Israelites who were tempted by the worship of false gods, they would bring it into the land. And when, when Israel was ultimately exiled out of their, the promised land, they were first exiled by Assyria, and then they were exiled by Babylon. And in fact, the letter of Habakkuk, if you've ever read through the letter of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is complaining about what's going on in Israel, about the rebellion that's going on in Israel. 
And he's, he's praying to God saying, Lord, do something about these people because they continue to disobey. And the Lord says, yeah, I'll do something about them. I'm bringing the Babylonians to, to, to punish them. And he's like, well, wait a second. Those guys are even worse than us. All right, so God was using Gentiles to not only punish the Israelites, but also to be a temptation to the Israelites. And so who is it that's using the Gentiles? Who is it that's using these people to attack God's people? Well, obviously, going back to chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, reminds us that we once followed after the prince of the power of the air, right? It's the Satan, it's Satan and the legion of demons who uses people to attack God's people, to use unbelievers to attack believers, to use people who are not God's people to tempt God's people. But here in the church, the amazing thing in the church now is that this church stands as proof to the rest of the world that God's plan was not merely just for Israel, but actually united Israel even with the people that Satan once used to tempt Israel. That we are together as one new man. So this is, it's being made known through the church. And the end of verse 10 says, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now this is interesting because it's made known through the church, but it's not nearly merely made known simply to unbelievers or to the world. But it says to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, this is not the first time we've been exposed to this kind of language from Paul. As we take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul is talking about Jesus Christ, that he has been exalted in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, I just read this, I just mentioned this, but in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then chapter 6, verse 12, we'll get there towards the end of our study of Ephesians. But Paul says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What Paul is referring to, he's referring to angelic beings, both good and evil. He's talking about angels as well as demons. That this multifaceted wisdom of God is being revealed to them just through the existence of the church. As they see the existence of the church, they start to understand. They start to realize just how God's plan was meant to unfold. And it is a marvelous mystery that until now has been hidden through all the ages and now revealed in Christ So while we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the gospel in order to bring salvation. But one of the beauties of the gospel is that it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your situation is, what country you're from, how you were raised. Anyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is brought into the body of Christ. Anyone who proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ is brought into the church and becomes a living testimony to this proclamation of God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So these Gentiles that once afflicted God's people are now among God's people. But as we continue on in this verse, we see in verse 11, actually going on to verse 11, Paul writes this, this is in accordance 
with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when he says this was in accordance, he's, he's talking about that this is referring to that multifaceted wisdom, that manifold wisdom. So that manifold wisdom was in accordance with what? With the eternal purpose, eternal purpose. And we had seen this already in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Paul said, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, meaning your salvation had been marked out even before creation happened. That your salvation was already the plan of God from eternity past. And when we think about the eternal purpose, we also have verses like Isaiah 46, verse 10. Isaiah 46, verse 10, when he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That verse from Isaiah, he says he declares the end from the beginning. Is there any question about whether God is truly in control or not. He declares the end from the beginning, and he says, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish not just some, not just most, not just a majority, but I will accomplish all my good pleasure. His purposes are eternal. Just as God is eternal, his purposes are eternal. They cannot be thwarted. There will be no victory for the forces of darkness. There will be no victory for those who stand against God. God will have his ultimate victory because this is his eternal purpose. And just as we had seen that God was the one who created all things in verse 9, we are reminded that God is all-powerful. He is completely sovereign to bring about what he desires to accomplish. And then as we continue on in verse 12, I'm sorry, we continue on, stay in verse 11 for a moment. He carried this out, says this eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, there's a very important connection between God's eternal purpose and the role of Jesus Christ. And as we take a look at one of our earlier verses in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, this is a reminder to us, Paul had already mentioned this, This to us when he was talking about these spiritual blessings to us in verse nine, he says he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his to to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. This is Paul saying that God has had a plan and it's going to climax in the in the final exaltation of Jesus Christ in the future. When he returns, when he establishes his kingdom, when we enter into the final state, the eternal state, we're going to see that all of history is meant to climax in the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose cannot be separated from the role of his son. Because it is his son who is exalted, his name above every name. It is his name by which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God. 
And that is the purpose as it relates to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we continue on in verse 12, verse 12, we read, In whom, and this whom refers to Christ, it reminds us that we are in union with Christ. We are the body and he is what? The head. He is the head. So in, in Christ, so verse 12, in Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Now, this word for boldness, boldness here is not just it's not brash arrogance. It's not just being able to walk anywhere at any time. It's not it's not this disregard for people around us. It's not thinking more of ourselves than what we really are. But it is this idea that we have the ability and the opportunity and the absolute freedom to be able to speak to God whenever we like. We can speak freely. We can go to God and we can speak freely to him. We do that in prayer. We do that in, our, in the supplications that we bring to him. So, so we can speak freely with our God. We don't have to worry about, you know, when you go and speak to your boss or when you go to speak to someone in authority, you might worry about how something might sound to them. You might worry about whether they have time for you. You might worry about whether a question you have is below them. In this case, God the Father wants to hear from us. And we have the opportunity to be able to speak freely to him. And this idea of confident access, we not only have boldness, but we have confident access. That's the idea that we can go to him at any time. You know, in the Old Testament, for the nation of Israel, the presence of God was made manifest through the glory of God in the holiest of holies. Inside the temple is where Israel would go to worship God. But inside the temple, there was a place called the holy place where only the priests were allowed. And then inside there, there was an even smaller area called the holiest of holies, where only the great high priest could go. And the idea is that only the great high priest had direct access to God. And only once a year, and that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he had to go in the right way or else he would be killed. But here we have free access to God at any time through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only our savior. He is not only our king. He is our great high priest. He is our great high priest who continues to intercede for us. And so when he was when he died on the cross and the veil of the curtain was torn. You see that in the book of Luke, when the veil of the curtain was torn, it was to symbolize that you no longer need to go through a human mediator in order to have access to God. You had access through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we not only have the freedom to speak freely with our Lord, with our God, but we also have confidence that we can access him at any time. At any time, you can, you can go to your knees in prayer. At any time, even while you're driving, you can keep your eyes awake and pray to God. At any time when you're with your fellows or brothers and sisters, you can go to God. You can lift up your request to God at any time. And he is never too tired. He is never too busy. Because you are part of the household of God. We are the children of God. And God wants us to go to him. But as we consider this eternal purpose that was revealed by God, this eternal purpose of God, we go to the next section. From the eternal purpose of God, we transition to the glorious goodness of God. From the eternal purpose of God, we transition to the glorious purpose of God. Go ahead and skip a few slides. Yeah, there, there we are. 
So our third section, the glorious goodness of God. This is verse 13. Paul concludes this section saying, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart. Now, this is pretty clear to us to, to lose hearts. It's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It means to lose enthusiasm or to be discouraged or maybe even even in this case, it's to be afraid. Now, why would people be afraid in terms of Paul's situation? Because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was the reason that we had so many Gentile churches that, um, that really just exploded and grew through the book of Acts, as we see also in these letters written to the churches. And so as people are being informed that Paul has been in prison and that he has been in prison, not for a short time, but for an extended period of time, they might even become scared that if this happens to Paul, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to God's purposes? But Paul says here, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. And he specifically, do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. You see, Paul is in prison, but remember how he identified himself back in verse 1 of chapter 3, that he called himself the prisoner of who? Christ. Even though physically he was the prisoner of Rome. Even though it was really the Jewish people who pressured him into appealing to Caesar that put him into prison. He could have easily said, I'm in prison because of the Jewish people. I'm in prison to Rome. But no, he ultimately recognized he is a prisoner of Christ because it is Christ who is in control. And he realizes that his situation turns out for the purpose of God. No matter what his situation is, God's purposes will be completed. They will be achieved. God's purposes cannot be thwarted no matter what the circumstances are. In fact, God uses what appears to be difficult circumstances in order to achieve his purpose. In fact, take a look at some of these verses, Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, when Paul says they are for your glory. Take a look at Philippians 1, 29 to 30. Verse 29, he writes, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Now let me stop right there. The word grant is the, it comes from the same root as the word grace. The word grant here is really the verb form of grace. It has been given by grace. Okay, It has been given by grace for the sake of Christ. Now when we think about what's been given to us by grace for the sake of Christ, we immediately think about our faith, our salvation, right? But notice what Paul says here. It has been given to you by grace for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to what? Also to suffer for whose sake? His sake, Jesus Christ's sake. And then verse 30 goes on to say, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, while Paul was in prison, he not only wrote the letter to the Ephesian church, he also wrote the letter to the Colossian church, and he wrote the letter to the Philippian church. So he's in the same situation as he's writing to the Philippians as he was when he was writing to the Ephesians. And what he's saying is that the opportunity to suffer is actually given to you by grace. It's given you to you by grace to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, why would it be by grace? This is not something that we normally look forward to. This is not normally something that we would want. But if we understand that God accomplishes his purposes, even through difficult situations, then we recognize that we are an instrument of God to accomplish his good purposes. 
no matter how hard those circumstances are. We are simply called to trust God and to obey what he has called us to do. But we also, as another example, I give to you 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, because here Paul is going to draw a, a connection between the affliction that he is going through and the salvation of the church. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. What is Paul saying there? Paul is saying there that when we suffer, it is for your salvation. It is for your comfort. And when you actually suffer, you suffer the same kind of sufferings that we have gone through as well. And another verse I'll pull up there. This is earlier on from the book of Ephesians. When we think about Paul saying that these are for your glory. Glory of who? He's talking about the glory of believers. Earlier on in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul wrote this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? There is a richness of glory in his inheritance, God's inheritance. And what is God's inheritance? God's inheritance is the saints. It is us. He inherits us. Of course, he already owns us. He, we belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to God. But there will be a future time in which that will be revealed. That will be finally, that will be completed for all time in the eternal state when we're in the presence of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But what he's saying here is not only are we the inheritance of God, but there is glory in that inheritance. So he's talking about final salvation. And we're also reminded in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. Paul writes this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. This is the sovereignty of God to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In the eternal state, when we are resurrected, we will be resurrected with glorified bodies. That means there is some sense in which our bodies will have the glory of God shining forth from it. And so as Paul is saying that, that his afflictions, that his tribulations, they are for your glory. They are your glory. It's the same kind of connection that Paul is making that the suffering and the afflictions I go through are the sufferings and afflictions that God is using in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles. We need not worry about tribulations and persecutions. We need not worry, even though we talk about how the culture is, is caving in on Christianity, how, how Judeo-Christian values are under attack in this nation, how the Christian church is under attack by political leaders seeking to be president. Ultimately, we need not worry because God is going to accomplish his purposes even in those most dire of situations. They are for our glory. And so Paul here is encouraging the Ephesian believers not to be concerned because this is good. 
In fact, as we take a look again right there at verse 13, let's reread this. He says, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So Paul is saying, don't worry about my situation, because this entire section, starting from verse one of chapter three, all the way up to this point, Paul has been reemphasizing over and over and over again that this has been grace given to me in order to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Don't be worried about this situation. Do not be afraid. Do not lose heart. Do not be discouraged. Do not lose enthusiasm because God is actually using this to accomplish his good purposes. Can you say that about the difficulties that you go through? Can you say that when you're suffering? Can you say that when you're under attack by this world who may mock us for our faith, make fun of the things that we believe in? You see, if you believe that God is sovereign over all things, if you believe that God is totally in control, if you believe that just as God used Paul's situation for the glory of the Gentiles, for the salvation of the Gentiles, then how much more should we believe that any tribulation or difficulty that we go through is brought about by God for his own good purposes? We can trust God. We can absolutely trust God. And so as we consider our principles for application... First, I would say rejoice in the victory of God through the church. You see, the church, as long as the church stands, and it will continue to stand until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, as long as the church stands, it is a testimony to the manifold wisdom of God, not only to the rest of the world, but also angels and even fallen angels, demons. It is a testimony to God's unlimited wisdom, his unlimited power and control to bring about his good purposes in us. And we are testimony to the world as we're part of the church when we love one another, when we show the unity of the church that is called for us. Because all of us, we have the greatest thing in common, and that is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And as I've said before, you can have everything in this world and not have Christ and you have absolutely nothing. But if you have Christ and you have nothing in this world, then you have everything. And that is the greatest commonality anyone could have. So rejoice in that victory of God through the church. The next one I have up there is embrace your role. Embrace your role. Just as Paul was given a stewardship, we too have been given a stewardship. We too have been given a responsibility to evangelize the lost, for instance. We know that we must go into the world and share the truth. And we must do it for their good. People need to hear the truth. And God, while he has predestined us, while he has called us before the foundation of the world, the way he calls us is through the proclamation of his gospel. We get to play a role in that. And then next, do not forsake the regular assembly. Talking about do not forsake meeting in church. There are so many people I run across who think that they can be a part of the church while being at home watching sermons on TV or listening to it over the radio or stream it over their computer. Beloved, if you have no other choice, if you're stranded somewhere, then okay, that's, that's, that's a suitable alternative. But there is no concept in the Bible for a Christian without the church. Do not forsake the regular assembly. And not only that, but as you meet together, build one another up in love. 
I've been emphasizing this and re-emphasizing this, but this is why we have the men's and the women's Bible study. This is why we have prayer time on, on Fridays. Um, this is why we do the things that we do is to be able to show the love of Christ. But we not only show the love of Christ to non-believers, we show the love of Christ to each other because Jesus said, this is how they will know that you belong to him by your love for one another. Of course, we are to love everyone. We are to love everyone. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But first and foremost, our testimony to the world is shown by our love for one another. And my third point here is to trust in the sovereignty of God. And I'd already talked about that, but God will always accomplish his good purposes. And remember, as Paul was imprisoned, he never stopped praising God. So no matter how hard our situation is, never stop praising God. I remember a young lady, um, she was in her late 20s, and she had uh, contracted uh, cancer. She had become terminal. There was no way she was going to be healed unless there was a miracle. And uh, there was, she had like four children. Um, so she obviously a, a very difficult situation. And I remember the nurse was ministering to her and, and feeling sympathy for her, feeling, um, feeling bad for her about what she was going through. And she reaches out, grabs that nurse by the arm and says, do not be sad for me because I know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is that I will absolutely be healed either by miracle in this earth or by miracle when I'm resurrected. And that is a hope that surpasses all understanding. So, beloved, as we consider this passage, let this be an encouragement to you. I talked earlier on as I started about our purpose, God's plan, knowing how we fit into the big picture. God has had a plan from eternity past to bring salvation, not just salvation to Israel as the people of God, but also to Gentiles to bring them into the same family of God, to bring them into the household of God. And God has made his plan revealed over time. At one time was hidden. There was mysteries that were hidden, but now have been revealed through the church just by its very existence, but also by our proclamation of the truth, by our sharing of the truth, by our love for one another. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me take this time to encourage you at this point that there is salvation for you if you would put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would repent of your sins and turn to the Lord, you will be saved. And there is no other way, there is no other path to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name by, under heaven by which man must be saved. We will all stand in judgment before God for the sins that we have committed. And the only way we can be freed from that penalty is to recognize that it was paid by the perfect man, the perfect God-man on the cross. Amen. Beloved, I hope this has been an encouragement. I pray that you would take this to heart. I pray that you would continue to grow in your knowledge and understanding and give praise to God every opportunity you have. Let's go and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time this morning. Thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for um, just revealing that to us through the Apostle Paul, through this wonderful letter. Uh, Father, we pray that we would never take these things for granted. We pray that you would work through those who are here for believers to help spur them on to greater praise and worship. And for those who do not know you, that they would 
give their lives over, that they would confess their sins, their need for a Savior, recognizing that only Jesus Christ provided that salvation.